Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So this is uh, part four in this um, this series that I'm um, uh, giving talks on sacred activism. Um, because, uh, for those who haven't been here, I've just been um, wanting to explore for myself how to bring the Dharma to uh, the current events and the news that, that is so prevalent and bombarding, particularly in an, an election uh, cycle, how to do this with, a, um, with an open heart and, um, um, and bring our practice to it. So the, the first week um, I um, talked about um, yeah, the line between um, politics and moral imperative and what I meant by that and mean by that is just seeing um, the basic uh, Buddhist edict or um, instruction of do no harm and uh, act for the good uh, as well as purify the mind. And when there is um, harm and, and um, hatred and uh, divisiveness being stirred up, um, that can be dangerous and lead to um, really um, whipping up the worst in us. Uh, it seems to me that uh, it's it's a um, a moral imperative to uh, to not get sucked into that and to do what we can to um, not support hatred. Um, then the second week uh, I talked, uh, the talk was, uh, we don't know what we don't know. And uh, particularly um, honoring that everybody has their own reality and it's hard for us to understand what somebody who might think differently than, uh, than we do thinks and, and rather than responding with self-righteousness or arrogance or uh, contempt uh, to really try to understand and honor and respect that good people, people that want to do good in this world, might think differently than we do or might not have um, the same access to information that we do or might have different conditioning that makes that shapes their mind in a way that's different than than um, than yours might. Um, so to have real humility in uh, rather than self righteousness as we uh, try to understand different perspectives. Uh, and then the last uh, last talk was um, about working with. Um, anger and frustration and, um, and and outrage that might come from um, from things not going the way we want or would like or think they should 
and to to really explore um, the consequences of having our anger uh, as the response to whatever anger or hatred is is there. Um, so tonight I wanted to talk uh, a bit about um, the positive side of bringing our practice into um, into this arena and um, I might have I think I will have one more talk um, after this one because there's a bunch that I realized that I wanted to say that um, I just couldn't fit it all into one talk um, so uh, one more next week uh, but tonight I wanted to talk about uh, the importance of vision, of holding an inspiring vision, holding the possibilities of something to um, to engage for uh, reasons to um, to engage reasons. I thought of calling this talk "Reasons for Hope," um, but the Buddhist. Uh, teaching on um, what's called clear comprehension uh, has come into play here. Clear comprehension, uh, there's one aspect of clear comprehension is called clear comprehension of purpose. That is, when we are, when we have an inspiring vision, we're motivated, we're moved to have that be the context that moves us in whatever we do. Suppose your clear comprehension of purpose, say, to practice is to um, relieve your suffering or to learn to open your heart as best you can or to um, become free and see through greed, hatred, and delusion whatever your particular vision is, and there's no one right one, but whatever moves you, inspires you, gives you some direction in your practice. And when that vision is a wider vision where it's not only about me, uh, but how can my practice be um, an offering to others just through my being, just through the um, walking of my talk, um, then that becomes um, even a greater inspiration and purpose. But sometimes when we read the, read the news or feel frustrated or despairing, even if we're or angry, even if we, even if we can hold our anger or hold our frustration or despair, um, if we just stop there and say, okay, well, I'll just accept the fact that I've got a lot of anger and frustration and just work with it and, uh, but gosh, you know, just going down the tubes. Um, there's not much inspiration to, uh, to do anything more than just hold the feelings inside, it doesn't get you to act. 
or if you're acting just out of anger or frustration, there's a different kind of an energy than if you are inspired and can hold some kind of a vision. <clears throat> this is also the, in the Eightfold Path, the second link, which is sometimes um, spoken of as uh, right thought or wise thought, is also wise intention. That is, having a, a direction of, uh, that moves you to practice, and then you can, you can practice wise speech and action and livelihood and the mental training of, um, of uh, meditation, effort, mindfulness, concentration. So I wanted to bring that idea of uh, vision and, um, uh, and purpose to, um, to this topic. <clears throat> and I wanted to um, read a, a passage. I've, I've read this before. I might have even read it uh, in, the, in the last few weeks since I've started it, but it particularly is... Um, apropos of this talk uh, by Howard Zinn. Uh, you can find this in my book, Awakening Joy, because uh, it, it, it's moved me. So from his um, essay called The Optimism of Uncertainty, and here it is. An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act, and at least the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. <clears throat> so, uh, first I just want to address the word hope. It's a very tricky word. And I, I've often quoted Seneca, the, the great Roman philosopher, Stoic philosopher. He has this one line, um, we cease to be afraid when we cease to hope because hope is accompanied by fear. And I agree, there there that does make some sense when you are just pinning all your hopes in, in a particular outcome. And there's fear that's feeding that attachment to the outcome. Then it can be a kind of you know, crossing your fingers and saying, is it going to work? And, and there's this kind of um, contraction that comes when you're coming from that place of, um, can even sometimes feel like a desperate kind of a hope. So along with having a vision, 
It also requires, if we have a vision and we hope that things will turn out a certain way, which I'll be, you know, talking about a little way in a little bit, there also needs to be this don't know mind that just allows for things to be how they are. You don't know. But if you do your best and have that vision, then um, you just see how it turns out. But you're engaged and you're part of it. Um, And one um, um, inspiring teacher in this uh, in, in this issue is Joanna Macy, who um, I've shared this, I've shown this in the last couple of weeks, who wrote this book, Active Hope. It's a, it's a really beautiful book, Active Hope. And, uh, and it's uh, the subtitle, How to Face the Mess We're Going In Without Going, cra- how to, sorry, How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. Active Hope. And she said that the word hope used to drive her crazy. It used to really bug her. Uh, And she wrote this beautiful book, Despair and Empowerment in the Nuclear Age. And how her, her, her teaching is so much about getting in touch with the pain and not having your head in the clouds and, oh, everything's going to work out just fine. Or, but to really feel the pain. Uh, but in recent times, she's seen the importance of hope in there as well. But what she calls active hope instead of that desperate hope or that attached hope. And this is her definition of active hope. It is identifying the outcomes we hope for and then playing our part in bringing them about. Focusing on what we deeply long for and then proceed to take determined steps in that direction, becoming an active participant in bringing about what we hope for. But without the attachment, you don't know how it's going to turn out. But if there's that commitment to do your part and then see how it turns out without that contraction and that desperation, then you're, uh, it's much more magnetizing for others because you're coming from love instead of fear. <clears throat> and the book that I particularly wanted to... Um, explore with you. That's really why I named this, um, this series, Sacred Activism, is called The Hope, A Guide to Sacred Activism by Andrew Harvey. Uh, it's a really excellent, inspiring work. Um, and I wanted to go into a little bit of uh, some of the teachings that, that Harvey has uh, this evening. I'll say a little bit more about hope, Um, this hope that's not attached to the outcome. It is um, akin for me to having the, the open heart of gratitude 
that can hold our suffering. You know, if we just focus on our suffering and what's wrong, then um, there's not the space to open to it and hold it all. And we just say, oh gosh, this is such a drag and how will I get through this? And, uh, and we become very narrow and very um, deadening in our spirit. But if we can open up to all the good in our life, if we can open up to all the blessings in our life, if we can open up with a grateful heart, then it somehow allows us to process whatever dukkha, whatever suffering there is that we're encountering. And it's the same in this sphere, that if we can have a a positive vision or of the possibilities, it can help us to hold the, the sadness and the suffering that is so easy to see. <clears throat> the, Buddha, the Buddha taught about suffering and the end of suffering. If he just stopped at the first noble truth and said, there's suffering in life, good luck. It would be a very depressing teaching, wouldn't it? But he said, yeah, there's suffering, and the more you can open up to the suffering but see the possibility of the end of suffering, then you can be inspired to really do your work. And in his teaching on, the, on wise effort, he talks about opening up to the, um, to the unwholesome, to the uh, unhealthy, to the sorrow and the pain, uh, guarding against getting swept up to it, but also opening up to all the goodness in your life. And when, uh, when there's a wholesome state that arises, to maintain and increase that wholesome state is a very healthy thing. And developing of those wholesome states allows us to um, create the conditions for the, uh, for the highest kind of freedom and awakening. So, wanted to talk a little bit about holding um, an inspiring vision, and um, I think I mentioned this the other uh, in the last few weeks. Um, if uh, if I didn't, or if I did, here it is again. I was so inspired um, recently watching uh, the TED Talk um, by Al Gore who um, uh, gave this beautiful talk just in February up in Vancouver. How many people have seen that talk? Anyone? A few. It's so good. It's so incredibly good. And I, if I can remember it, I'm going to send it out on the e-group that I, um, that I do send out, um, announcing what the talks are about. <clears throat> And the, the title of the talk is, um, I wrote it down here, is it? The Case for Optimism on Climate Change. I highly recommend it. And just hearing him talk, and he talks, he starts out with the heavy news. He said, you got to see this, you have to acknowledge it, there's no getting around it, there's... There's trouble. 
But then he, after laying all of that out, he goes into all the good news, which I'll get into in, uh, in a little bit. Um, so, <clears throat> reasons for hope and, and holding an inspiring vision. <clears throat> Andrew Harvey, in, in his book, The Hope, um, talks about um, the death and rebirth, the process of death and rebirth. And I've mentioned this fab- terrific phrase that he, 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 um, he's, he speaks of, that we're in a dark night of the species. Um, and I've mentioned it a few times here. I want to go into it a little bit more tonight, the dark night of the species, like the dark night in the spiritual journey where you have to face your deepest fears and, uh, and, be, uh, and find the courage that, uh, that is in there in order for you to come out the other end. This is the classic hero's journey. And the, the dark night of the soul, St. John of the Cross or the dark night of the soul, um, is about this journey. And the dark night of the species is you go through you go through the deepest pain and sorrow and there's a mini death in there and you um, come into being born in a new way. <clears throat> Going from the dark to the light. And, and I just want to mention uh, particularly um, darkness is a... Uh, uh, is a word sometimes I want to be particularly careful, partic- uh, especially in these times with um, um, diversity and inclusion and, and not seeing dark as bad, certainly not in terms of, of skin, uh, something so superficial as that, but the darkness that's spoken of, say, in Buddhism is about um, the that you can't see clearly in the darkness, and so the, it's easier to get caught up in ignorance, and so that's the darkness that uh, that I'm speaking of, and the word um, you might be familiar with the word I'm sure you are the word guru literally means gu and ru is going from darkness to light going from confusion and not seeing clearly to waking up and being able to see clearly. Um, So this is when I talk about the dark night of the soul or the dark night of the species. This is the the veil of of ignorance of not seeing clearly that I'm talking about. And um, in one chapter, Andrew Harvey gets into uh, both the the death and the rebirth, and the, the darkness and coming into the possibilities. And uh, first he gets into the bad news, and he, no lack of that, but he says there are, um, what he sees is seven different aspects of uh, what we're facing now that make it a particularly challenging time going through this dark night of the species. 
environmental devastation. I won't spend too much time on this, but uh, you'll be familiar with it. Environmental devastation. Check. Uh, Population explosion, where resources are limited and uh, and we keep on seeming to exponentially um, reproduce ourselves and seems like there's there's less to go around, um, especially in our usage of resources, population explosion, the growth of fundamentalism, and that is um, religious inspired hate and terrorism, and we see this um, no matter what the religion, whether it's um, Christian or Jewish, or um, Muslim, or uh, Hinduism, or Buddhism, every, every of one of those major religions, I can think of some um, misuse of the deepest teachings to inspire hatred and fear and... Um, and violence. So when one doesn't see the, the true um, gems of the spiritual tradition, and every one of those traditions has profound teachings, then um, in the name of religion, uh, great harm can happen. So growth of fundamentalism that leads to hatred and, and terror and violence. Uh, nuclear proliferation, he has seven here. Nuclear proliferation, which um, certainly uh, can put us all on edge if it would get into the wrong hands or um, that kind of threat is always there. We've been there for the last 60, 70 years. Our technological worldview that is where we're cut off from nature and we are in a, in a, um, a mindset where humans are dominating nature. That is our, uh, our um, destiny. And in that, when we get cut off from nature, we lose connection with life and what's important. Corporate mindset and corporate control of media where um, greed and profit is the main motive and violence is what is being fed and fear is what is feeding our, our consciousness you know, that has a huge effect on the collective psyche. Uh, And the last one he says in this darkness that keeps us from seeing clearly, the hectic pace of our life. I remember when I was, I'm just remembering now, uh, this thought when I was a kid, and we had um, my weekly reader in school, if you're old enough to remember My Weekly Reader. How many people remember My Weekly Reader? Oh, wow, did they have it even in the last 20 years? 
But in, I remember when I was a kid, my weekly reader, they used to talk about how in 40 years or 50 years or so, there'd be um, so much leisure. Do you remember that? You know, machines would run everything and we would just have time to kick back and enjoy life. I thought, okay, that's cool. That's worth hanging around for. Yeah, well, machines control a, a hell of a lot, but uh, it doesn't seem to have slowed our pace any. If any, we are speeding up to keep up with the machines, and there's so, such incredible pressures, and just to, you know, that's, what's the, the expression? You know, if, you're, if you win at the, in, in the rat race, you're still a rat, you know, going around, you know. And we are on this treadmill that we can't seem to get off of, particularly with so much stimulation um, and this hectic pace of our life. So that's the bad news, okay. Now, want to see how and, and uh, explore how Andrew Harvey um, brings uh, the good news so that the death can lead to a birth or a rebirth, a new birth. Mm. And he says that waking up to all of the suffering is hard. It's painful. There's no way that it doesn't really um, really affect us deeply, that we don't have heartbreak. But this isn't a bad thing, that the heart shatters and can break open to new possibilities, and that if our our practice, particularly, and why he calls this sacred activism, he's talking about bringing spiritual dimension to open up to all of this. If our practice is strong enough and is a, a strong enough container to allow us to digest all the suffering, instead of being overwhelmed by it, we can be transformed by it. And that's what this transformation is about. In fact, I want to read to you is it? one passage where he says this beautifully. He says, um, mm. The reason I, I stress the sacred in sacred activism is that I know from my own deepest experience that if you do not understand such massive heartbreak as a necessary stage of initiation, into the extremity and the saving madness of divine love, there is a great danger in approaching it. With mystical or spiritual knowledge and practice, you're strong enough to accept the shattering by heartbreak and the rekindling in its fires of your whole being and life's purpose. Without spiritual knowledge and practice, it would be hard not to be ruled by fear 
and dominated by the prevailing culture of detachment, which will only keep you from your deepest sources of compassion and joy, and passion, purpose, and hope. The future hope of sacred activism rests with beings who are courageous, loving, and grounded enough in sacred knowledge and peace to endure the heartbreak of experiencing this death as it really is, and so to experience the birth into a new state of empowerment with urgent passion and compassion and wisdom. I hope that made sense that our practice can, it can be like a, um, the, um, the, the, the magic uh, transformer that takes in the pain, like the Tonglin practices uh, in, uh, in Tibetan, where you take in the pain and the sorrow and take it right into your heart and it touches something very pure in there that changes it into compassion. So, to acknowledge the this, this suffering and pain, very essential, but not to stop there. And then he talks about the birth, about all the good reasons to be inspired and to be motivated to do your part, as Joanna Macy says, to show up and do your part and uh, just add to that uh, inspiring positive energy. And he lists um, seven of them. I'm just going to do six, the, the first six. First, he says that um, the crisis itself that we're all facing, whether it's on climate change or uh, injustice or greed versus compassion, the crisis of humanity that's really based in greed, hatred, and delusion, and we are in a crisis now because we are, for the first time, humans can be determining or dictating the fate of the earth, that the crisis itself gives rise to a response. That it's a wake-up call on a massive scale, uh, and although there's never been as much destruction, there's never been as much caring as ever before in the history of humankind And he points out um, one particular study that uh, Paul Hawken did that ended up being a book called Blessed Unrest. Uh, Paul Hawken, uh, who did the, um, what was it? Not the, did he do the whole Earth catalog? um, Smith and Hawken, yeah who is a brilliant and inspiring uh, person, he, he, wrote, he, he did this research, Blessed Unrest, on how many organizations there are 
that are working towards bettering humanity and the planet. How many, what he called progressive movements, movements that is devoted either to the environment, human rights, um, gay or LGBT rights or animal rights or equality, uh, justice, basically justice for all. And he found in his research that there, and this was written um, I think about uh, eight years or so ago, between one and two million organizations devoted to ecological sustainability and social justice. One or two million organizations then, and you can only imagine what's happened in the last eight years or so. And the more, why he wanted to particularly look at these consciousness organizations, he saw the more they're grounded in um, spiritual understandings in, um, rather than hatred, but the, that's, that's the strong, that's where they really make a difference. <clears throat> and these days, there's leaders, incredible, inspiring leaders who are um, moving so many of us from Pope Francis to um, Desmond Tutu to the Dalai Lama, to um, so many leaders who are speaking the truth in a way that moves others. The divestment movement in the last year, 50 times higher amount of money pledged than a year before from 52 billion a year ago to 2.6 trillion dollars committed to a pledge to divestment from fossil fuels the largest financial institutions are finding that investing in renewable energy is going to be a smart profitable thing to do. Mm, so many, I have a whole list of, of events. Things are changing. And uh, one of the things that uh, Al Gore talks about in the, in the case for uh, optimism on climate change, he talks about all these different movements that came out of, in response to... Um, to confusion and and small-mindedness, the abolitionist movement, the suffragette, uh, the suffrage uh, women's suffrage movement, civil rights mu- movement, LBGT, uh, uh, gay rights movement—all of those things were in response to um, small-mindedness, and so that's how it works with where we are right now as he he quotes Wallace Stevens, after the final no comes a yes, and on that yes, the future depends. Every one of those movements had a a no, 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 and then finally a yes, and things changed. Even though not 
you can't make everybody change their mind, but the conventional wisdom, the paradigm of what's acceptable or not changes. So that's one. The crisis itself gives rise to a response. Two, creative technologies that, although a lot of technology has us running away with ourselves, there's also so much, um, so many possibilities that weren't here before. Solar power, wind power, and this is where Gore really gets into it in, in his talk. Solar power, wind power, uh, wind energy, in the year 2000, it was predicted that by the year 2010, there would be, I forget how much, uh, um, how much energy was predicted would come from wind power, but actually by the year 2010, 14 times the prediction came to pass in 2010, and it's gone up a lot since then. Solar power, in the year 2002, it was predicted that by the year 2010, there would be one gigawatt per year growth. Well, it turns out that by the year 2010, 17 times that prediction came to pass. By the year 2015, 58 times what was predicted came to pass. And by the year 2016, 68 times that prediction is, seems to be manifesting. So, and he, there's this curve, this graph, where it's like not much is happening and then all of a sudden, zoop, it goes like that. So you can't tell what's going to happen by whatever the prediction is. Oh no, too late, might as well throw in the towel. And then he makes this other, he gives another example. Cell phones in 1980, it was predicted that in 20 years, the year 2000, there would be 900,000 cell phones. Right? And he has this, I don't know if you remember, you know, those big... So, oh, they've got a cell phone, right? And actually, um, by the year 2000, there were 109 million cell phones. And can you imagine how many there are now? It's, you know, worldwide. Because the cost drops and quality improves and things get also into developing countries. And that kind of changes everything. So things like stem cell research and medical breakthroughs in cancer, which at one point you said the word cancer and it was like a death sentence. And now I know so many people who are cancer survivors or gains in Alzheimer's or I was looking, you see in the paper today there was, this, there was an article about this guy who was paralyzed and he, he hadn't been able to move his, his limbs for years. Any, how many people saw that? Anybody? You know, it was pretty cool. And they, they've figured out, he comes into the lab in Ohio, and they can, with his brain, he can somehow tell, his brain is wired up to his arm, and uh, with the right technology, his arm can move for the first time. And this is like a breakthrough that 
um, there's unlimited possibilities with people who've been paralyzed. So there's creative technologies. You just don't know. I'll mention just a couple of, a few others. I know we're getting close to time. A third in this birth, new forms of democratizing the media. There's consciousness in film, like in Inconvenient Truth when that came out. By the way, do see Michael Moore's new movie, Who to Invade Next. It's, it'll really get to you uh, and maybe help us all wake up. But the internet, Arab Spring, 350.org, tweeting and movements starting like a flash fire. So we just don't know. We don't have enough information to know what's going to be. Then he talks about the mystical renaissance or the spiritual renaissance, um, which is um, just how consciousness has exploded in these last decades. And now, you know, the, among other things, the mindfulness explosion. Who would have thought when I was starting this 40 years ago that mindfulness would be, you know, something that they teach in schools and in Kaiser and in, uh, uh, in even in the military, but there's some good at least in, in that. That mindfulness and consciousness and um, really... Uh, based in being aware, awake, and bringing out the best. On all levels, in all different spiritual traditions, there's a renaissance, not so much of the, the traditional or fundamental, but of a deeper kind of spirituality that um, is, is here, uh, around us, everywhere. And then he talks about the evolving philosophy of nonviolence just in these last hundred years from Gandhi and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and Bishop Tutu and the Dalai Lama and Pope Francis. There's been a more and more, um, as I said a little bit ago, the spiritual, the true spiritual leaders are um, being heard and that there is this understanding of nonviolence and loving of peace. Um, and then the last one that I'll mention that uh, is so, I find so inspiring is uh, the return and the development of the divine feminine, what he calls the divine feminine. That more and more compassion is seen as a value and there are many, many areas from, he calls, holistic medicine, uh, the connection, mind-body connection, the business world models that stress cooperation and mutual respect as being more effective, um, rights of animals, gay rights, women's rights, uh, yoga, meditation, um, proliferation, forms of therapy, growth in many areas of science um, that start seeing our knowledge of interdependence. 
It's no longer who's going to win is the, is the, uh, is the really forward-thinking paradigm, but how can we come together, um, which I think is really the essence of the, the best of the divine feminine, not, not necessarily um, um, that uh, it's not just about women's rights, but it's about the spirit that compassion brings over, that's uh, more powerful than might. So with all of these things, um, we don't know how it's going to turn out, do we? So I'd like you just, and we just have a few, a uh, few moments left. I'd like you to just um, close your eyes for a moment, and whatever your thoughts have been about how the world might be going down the tubes, or you get frustrated or um, fearful or whatever, let go of those for a moment, and just open up to this don't know mind. And with all of these positive possibilities, let your imagination take you to an inspiring vision for humanity as it goes through its dark night of the species and comes out the other end. What can you envision What can you imagine? I'm not talking about pie in the sky. I'm talking about the challenging work of transforming confusion into wisdom and compassion and you being a part of that. Just because it feels good, what else is there to do? Hold that vision in your heart. The more you can hold it in your heart, the more others can awaken to it. The more you can be an agent of consciousness. And as Joanna says in that active hope, it's having that vision and doing your part, letting go of the attachment to outcome, just doing your part. Because it feels good.
as Thomas Merton says, coming to terms with the fact, perhaps, that what is done may ultimately be fruitless, but that you're doing it not just for the hope for res- of results, but you get used to the idea and you start more and more to do it, what you do, because of the rightness of it, the truth of what you do for itself. Let that vision inspire you and see you through the challenging times and help awaken that vision in everyone else who you know who cares. So we'll close with a loving kindness dedicating the merit of our coming here together for the benefit of all. May all see through their fears and connect with their caring. May all be moved by their love of life and awaken to the goodness inside. May all see clearly, awaken to their true nature. And may our coming here together be of benefit to all beings everywhere and this planet that is so generous with us, our home. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Have a really good week. And uh, yeah, I'm going to close this. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.